It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor of Politico Europe. The pace just never slows down in European and global politics these days. This week, we've got data and democracy scandals involving Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. We're going to talk about that with Politico's artificial intelligence reporter, Janos Delka, and also with the panel at the end of the show. The panel is going to discuss my new list of the 20 MEPs who matter in 2018. But the list has a twist. We've selected the naughtiest members of the European Parliament, the ones who matter for the wrong reasons, from convicted terrorists to windbags to Holocaust deniers. In the main interview this week, I spoke to Linus Linkovicius, the Foreign Minister of Lithuania. We spoke in the hours after Vladimir Putin coasting to re-election. Some would say he cheated his way to re-election. But before, Jean-Claude Juncker sent a rather extraordinary letter and tweet congratulating Putin, right at the moment when the EU was supposed to be expressing its unreserved solidarity with the United Kingdom over what the UK says was state-sponsored poisoning against civilians. But first up, we talk artificial intelligence with Janos Jelka. So joining me now on EU Confidential is Janos Delka, who is one of our Berlin-based reporters here at Politico. But most interestingly, he is, we think, the first AI, the first artificial intelligence reporter for any major publication worldwide. So thank you for joining us, Janos. Very happy to be with you, Ryan. Now, the other reason why we wanted to get you onto the podcast this week is we've just hosted an AI summit here in Brussels where we got together around about 100 of the world's leading experts and stakeholders when it comes to how our world is going to change, how it's going to revolutionize our economy, how it's going to potentially redefine what it is to be human. And we locked everyone on an island in a park in Brussels, and we've just finished that summit. So, Janosch, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what your takeaways were from that rather intense gathering of all of these people who are really working at the cutting edge of how this is going to transform our world. Yeah. You know, I think one thing that you could really sort of sense or feel on that island, as you said, is that Europe is really right now in the middle of trying to find its own place or, or define the role it would like to play when it comes to artificial intelligence and when it comes to the rapid development of AI around the world. Because, you know, often when you when you read about AI, it's being described as this sort of arms race between the US and China. Europe is kind of forgotten or dismissed. And the landscape is being described as that you have the United States on the one hand, which follows a very business-centered approach, if you will. 
So AI technology is essentially developing according to what the companies want, you know, what consumers want. You can buy data. And it's, so it's a very market force led approach, if you will. And then on the other side, you have China, which has a government led approach, you know, where the state is massively investing in AI research and tech, where it's providing companies with data. China has left no doubt that they're pretty serious about it. You know, they said they want to exceed all other nations in AI by 2030. So, you know, these are sort of like the two major players that are always being described. And a lot of people kind of ignore Europe when it comes to AI. And I think, you know, that's interesting because, you know, from what I gathered from all the conversations that I had on that island is that, you know, Europe isn't willing to follow either of those two approaches that I just described, so either the US approach or the Chinese approach, but you know, wants to sort of like come up with its own third way, if you will. That's certainly the impression I got as well, and that Japan might be the EU's ally there and having a bit more of a hybrid approach. One player that we didn't really talk about a lot at the summit, but who has raised the issue before, is Vladimir Putin, who has said in the past that whoever figures out AI is going to to rule the world. And that that comment really rammed home for me just how diverse the impacts are going to be, whether it is the little details of how farmers go about farming through to how we are able to stay in control of essentially this artificial intelligence and the robots that are just going to become a bigger and bigger feature of our world. Because when they start learning for themselves and learning from each other, that is potentially an uncontrollable situation. One of the big discussions was on the ethics side, which is where the EU tends to be a bit of a forerunner. You know, you've seen the EU be very out there and strategic when it comes to things like data privacy. And now I think we're starting to see a little bit of the EU pushing the boundaries when it comes to what should be the social framework for how AI develops. What takeaway did you get from those discussions? I I was left with the impression that you could have only a very loose form of governance at the global level, that it would take national or regional bodies to be pioneers in more sophisticated forms of governance, because the level of agreement uh, globally is very thin at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I I got a very similar impression to yours. I think, you know, Europe sees its role in sort of, you know, at the forefront of protecting people's privacy and data, you know, politicians here really want that to be sort of at the center of discussion. You know, there was one that was during a Chatham House rule discussion, but there was one participant who said, you know, we should have some pride in Europe and, and we should be, you know, sort of the continent that shapes the values. So really, you know, Europe wants to be kind of the place where ethics are being developed. And, you know, what I find found quite interesting is obviously, you know, this conference took place as more and more details about the recent Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal were unfolding. So, you know, we've all heard of the story, you know, private user data from Facebook was being leaked to to this political consulting firm, Cambridge Analytica. And this firm was cooperating with the Trump campaign in the US, in the US ahead of the 2016 election. You could really feel how those news were fueling backlash among the policymakers there, you know, among academics and even among some of the business leaders. There was one participant who said, you know, she, she said, I've always been so tech savvy, but now I would just like to demand all my data back. And, you know, another one said, you know, our governments really now need to take actions. So it could be that this, you know, these these recent revelations are really that kind of eye-opening moment for Europe that if the continent wants to fulfill this role as a leader in data protection and safety in a future world, you know, where, where there's much more AI than we have now, then, you know, it needs to be quick. It, it needs to, like, act now. 
I wonder if there's also a bit of a a rift emerging between the policy making and the political elite and and ordinary people. On one hand, I do suspect that people will just keep giving their data over, even if they're explicitly warned. Okay, this social platform wants to look at your camera and all of your friends and all of your photos all of the time. Even if you warned them explicitly, a lot of them would still click through maybe and just give away that data. But at the same time, we did a poll during one of the sessions I was moderating and the sort of, I guess, the ordinary audience members in the room, they were heavily in favor of governments moving towards regulation in this field, whereas the experts who deal with it on a day-to-day basis, they were very reluctant. You know, they saw the risks, but they didn't think we were anywhere close to being able to have a, a functional, effective regulation. And it was noticeable, that gap between the I guess, the ordinary people and the experts. Yeah, it's very true. And it's also, you know, it's, it's kind of an, well, an easy thing to, to demand transparency for users when it comes to AI applications. But once you look into the technology, it's just not that easy. You know, a transparency is, is kind of difficult to really sort of, I mean, first of all, to, to define what does transparency in a context of AI mean? Does it mean sort of revealing your code? Does it mean like providing all information about the data you used? What other sort of aspects does it include? So, yeah, I would probably agree with you. There is a certain rift that's sort of like starting to, to, to become bigger at the moment. Well, the other thing that's going to get bigger is your beat, I think. I don't think we're in any <laughs> danger of you being out of a job anytime soon, Janosch. Thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you so much, Harina. Happy to be there. That was Janosch Delka, Politico's artificial intelligence reporter. And coming up next is Linus Linavicius, the foreign minister of Lithuania. We're sitting here in the Lithuanian delegation room in the, the nice new Europa building. These are much nicer than the old meeting rooms, I think, Minister. Um, welcome to the EU Confidential Podcast. Thank you very much. Pleased to talk to you. Now, first of all, congratulations on the restoration of Lithuanian independence. You're celebrating 100 years of, of that uh, event this year. How are those celebrations going? I hope we will be celebrating whole year because it's centenary, so many events already took place, also some in Brussels and other capitals. It was really uplifting of all emotional, so to say, feelings. And frankly, during the very day of 100 years, it's 16th of February, I do not remember anything like that in Vilnius. The mood of people, everyone was really from the bottom of the heart celebrating and optimism was prevailing. So let's hope it will be really the case for our future. I hope so too. Uh, One way we might have to bring the mood down a little bit though is to mention the Russian elections and it's the fourth anniversary of the annexation of Crimea, the the occupation of Crimea. Do you have any reflections on how Putin has been behaving both towards Lithuania and more generally towards the European neighbourhood? Unfortunately, Russia disregards international law and also being proud about that. That explains partially why these elections were organized on very date. It's not accidental, definitely. And frankly, it's also testing our resilience, our ability to react or maybe trying to sell this changed unforgivable and uh, intolerable situation as a new normal 
as new normal because everyone was used to that, same as it was after the war in South Caucasus in 2008. We were reacting very tough way, if you remember, making very good statements, but very soon we got back to business as usual, and that was realized by Russia's lessons learned for the future with the minimum price, so to say, and damage. So that shouldn't be the case, and we should really be, be more mature, less naive, and that's also part of the deal. Also, there is a big question, what will happen in Russia after elections? I would add also also after this uh, football cup, <laughs> which, is, which is probably before that uh, will be nothing special or serious uh, will happen. But this uh, football cup also, in my view, bad idea to have this in Russia. Uh, so should we talk about boycotting it or uh, some it other form should, of action? First of all, it shouldn't happen because, you know, in Russia, everything used for politics. If somebody says or think that uh, sport is not politics, art is not politics, in Russia, it's wrong. Everything is politics. And, you know, to make Russia proud uh, that being capital of this uh, world religion football, I do not believe it's very, very productive, frankly. But uh, we all wish to have more more rapprochement, so to say. But today, unfortunately, we cannot consider Russia as a partner. Uh, it's, it's a factor. You should take in waste resources, time, money, and God knows what to achieve because you cannot do anything together today. So that's, that's a problem. And up to Russia, first of all, to change something if Russia wishes uh, to be back to the uh, world arena as a partner. And is the EU, is NATO ready to cope with further Russian aggression? We've seen the battalions, they're forming uh, in the Baltic states, mostly in Estonia, uh, they're physically present. Is that enough or does the EU and NATO need to do more? Not only in Estonia, in all, all Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, also Poland, there is so-called enhanced forward presence with framework nations, United States, Canada, United Kingdom, Germany, and Lithuania as a framework nation. So this is very important, and we value that very much, although it's definitely not something terribly big, because it's thousand-plus soldiers, uh, again, but this is multinational, very strong response and very strong message outside, inside, and that's exactly what we would like to see in the future. And uh, more to say, this understanding increases. I, I shouldn't say that we are already there, but it was much better than five, ten years ago. And uh, all every country goes through own experience, basically. This is also important to know. We were talking about these issues endlessly, and uh, that was sometimes ignored, I would say. But now everyone has own, so to say, opinion after events in France uh, during elections, after Netherlands after MH17, so to say, shutting down, after meddling and even attempts to make coup in Montenegro, you know. And does it worry you when you see leading politicians in Italy, for example, almost being a cheerleader in a way for President Putin? Well, let's wait. Let's see while they will be able, if they will be able to create government, we'll see what government will say because there is electoral mood and sometimes after elections there is different stands because more information coming and I hope it will be the case. So it's, uh, let's not prejudge anything. Same as it was, by the way, after elections in states. If you remember, there were calls that now we should be autonomous, we should, because Americans walking away, which is not the case as we understand, by far nothing to do 
with that. Let's stay engaged. Let's let's really, really learn lessons, which I said not learned uh, to the to the uh, level which which would be expected, and let's not jump to any conclusions. Mm-hmm. We heard some Ukrainian voices in recent days saying it's time to get tough on Europeans, like Gerhard Schroeder the former German chancellor, mm. and the idea that he is almost a lobbyist for Vladimir Putin, or at least elements of the Russian state now. Can you foresee a time, or do you want to see a time, when people like Schroeder go onto a sanctions list? I don't know if, if their activity will be really detrimental directly. You said almost lobbyist. He's not almost lobbyist, but he's working for that company and earning money, by the way, getting salaries. So it's direct engagement. So those who will really be detrimental in activity, of course, they should be also considered, regardless of their nationality or citizenship. Now, on an issue like Brexit, uh, you've just met with Boris Johnson last week. Lithuanians and and British people have been quite close in the past. I think you have a reasonably similar mindset to at least some economic issues, for example. How do you see that playing out? Are you hopeful that uh, the UK can maintain close relations with Europe or is there going to have to be some tough medicine at some point where where Britain is told you're not able to cherry pick and we're, we're united as the 27. It's first of all up to UK to, to, to choose how far they should go away and uh, more, more we talk uh, more we understand that they do not want to go away totally and they also value these relations and I believe this is the case reciprocal way uh, talking about citizens. Yes, we have big community, one of the largest, 200,000 something Lithuanians live in, in UK. And I believe some 3 million maybe Europeans live. That's amazing. That, so that's a, almost 10% of the Lithuanian population. It's big, I said, big number, so we cannot be ignorant, so we do, do care. Now, I was really recently in London, met many people, position, opposition, think, tank, think tanks, economists, and I cannot say that this is united united view. Uh, frankly, even those who were pro pro Brexiters, so to say, they also recalculating and not everyone very happy. So it's up to them, first of all, to decide how far they, they would like to go. But we are interested to keep them as close as possible, economically, trade. Well, we all, always considering United Kingdom as the closest allies, be it NATO, be it United Nations, by the way, where we were members, uh, non-permanent members of Security Council, very close cooperation. Mm-hmm. So we believe and hope that uh, th- this will be the case, as they are repeatedly saying themselves, that they're not leaving Europe, of course, with all consequences. So let's hope it will be the case. Minister, thank you very much for joining Appreciate us on the podcast. Thank you very much. You are listening to Linus Linkovicius, the Foreign Minister of Lithuania, Coming up next, our regular podcast panel. Okay, now it is time to welcome back the Brussels Brains Trust. Hi, Alva. Good morning. Hi, Lena. Good morning, Ryan and Alva. We are sweating away here in our little studio in Brussels. It was snowing yesterday. Now the sun is beating down and we've been trying to air out the studio so we can survive this taping. But most importantly... It has been a mega week of EU WTF moments. I don't even know where to start. I think we might have to go first to Cambridge Analytica. Mm. 
Alexander Nix, the CEO of Cambridge Analytica, was taped by Channel 4 News in the UK talking to a prospective client who happened to be a journalist from that TV station, talking about how he is used to operating in the shadows, how he would like to have a long-term and secretive relationship, that they do deep digging, that they send people in and out of countries, they ghost in and they ghost out. And then the line that impresses me most is, quote, these are things that don't necessarily need to be true as long as they are believed. So I guess my question to the panel is, does any of this matter? Are you surprised that companies do this with your data? Not at all. I mean, most recent House of Cards series really went into this, like mining people's data. So we've all been aware the Cambridge Analytica story is not new. It broke after Trump was elected. The Channel 4 uh, coverage and kind of reveal of what they've been doing in the shadows is very, very interesting. I am so idiotic that they managed to be ensnared by that. But no, I'm not. I'm not um, surprised at all. No one should be. It's like watching the movies. I mean, this is a private matter. It's a human rights issue. And it shouldn't be just like the EU or a commissioner. Uh, Of course, it's wonderful that Commissioner Jurova is now in Washington and she's talking to everybody. And yesterday she was talking to the Tech Alliance and investigating the whole situation. But still, isn't it like a human rights thing that it could be adopted by the United Nations? And they have to do something more on a global level because it's not going to stop. It's going to go on. Okay, one more final EU WTF because... Alva pointed out to us that an Irish judge had refused to deport a Polish man back to Poland. There had been some issue there. And she said that it was about all of the changes to rule of law in Poland, the judicial reforms there, where she wasn't willing to have him sent back. And now she has been the victim of a series of hate mail and attacks from Polish politicians who then went on the offensive saying, well, you're a lesbian. How dare you make this judgment? (laughs) Kind of proves a point about yeah, the Polish political elite. It's very, it's very interesting. Like that, that that is one of the things that they were criticizing her about. But um, European lawyers associations have all kind of come to her cause and said, you know, we we really shouldn't be targeting any personal things about uh, about judges. It should be about the law. So yeah, you're dead right. It does kind of like point point to flaws in the system anyway. And uh, yeah, the the fact that the Polish media like they really had headlines like lesbian judge does this and. <laughs> Yeah, it was very strange, but I just wanted to nominate that because I thought, hilarious, aren't they proving the point? Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. And now it's time for the MEP of the Week segment, but we are going to do it with a difference this week. We received some feedback last week from a listener who said he found it a little bit boring to hear us pulling names out of a hat about people we don't know. Well, the truth is we still have 650 names left in that box, but we want you to know that we heard you, Lawrence, mm-hmm. and you are in luck. This week, Politico is publishing my annual list of the MEPs that matter. And this year, we've added a little twist. Instead of just listing the 40 most influential MEPs overall, we're publishing 20 MEPs who matter for the wrong reasons. I sent that list to Lena and Alva to have a think about before they came into uh, the podcast to choose their favourite or their negative favourite MEP uh, so that we could list and debate who is the baddest or strangest of them all. Should I give a flavour of who's on this list or should we dive into some individual examples? I'd say name a few. Okay. We've covered some of them before, actually, Mm. unsurprisingly. We have, indeed. (laughs) So uh, at the top of the list is a man called Elmer Brock. He's the father of the house. He's been an MEP since 1980. 
Uh, a former German Chancellor said his CV was born, married, MEP. He's really been doing this a long time. Uh, he is the patron of Martin Selmayr, this figure we've spoken about a lot, who now effectively runs the European Commission. Um, and he definitely has a reputation for intemperate behaviour amongst staff. But it was very interesting doing this list because we uh, investigated, we talked to Mr. Brock, and we said, look, here are some of the allegations against you. And he said, well, you know, one of the reasons why I sometimes close my eyes on panels, it's not me falling asleep. I had cancer as a child. Uh, that's left me with permanent injuries and permanent pain. And it's very frustrating to hear people complain that I close my eyes at panels when actually it's this permanent health situation. So it's really interesting that when you think someone might be doing the wrong things, um, often they have good reasons, it's good to ask. What Mr. Brock wasn't able to explain is that he took money from Bertelsmann as a senior executive for more than 10 years and then continued to be a paid consultant for that company up until uh, mid-2014. So it's not clear why he needed to do that mm. as an MEP. And yes, we certainly have had a lot of people come to us and say that he um, doesn't treat his staff so well. But he says the proof is in the pudding. I'm friends with them for years afterwards. So a bit of a he said, she said situation there. Um, who else have we got? We've got Gianni Patella. We've got people who were former party leaders. You know, he's led his party down the tubes. He ran for election in his home country, but kept his job while he was at it. He's linked to the mystery professor in the Mueller investigation <laughs> into the, the US and the Russian interference in the US elections. We've got others who just haven't turned up for their job in seven years. We've got one man who gave 2,163 speeches since 2014. I don't think anyone remembers any of them. So it's a cast of characters in this list. Um, who did you ladies think were the most interesting? I chose Bruno Galnisch, who is Le Pen's right-hand man. He's been in the Front National for a long time. He's just been re-elected to whatever their leadership council is. And he's a very interesting individual. I had a look at some of the speeches he'd made and some of the resolutions he'd brought. Some of them are like questioning the EU on why they're so concerned about LGBTI rights. Uh, and I think one of the most interesting things, he's an academic and he's worked in this very famous university in Lyon. And they're famous for um, thoughts around Holocaust denial. He has also allegedly denied the Holocaust. Um, and yeah, I think one of the most interesting things that I found out about him is that he is really, really into Japan, a known xenophobe. One of his academic credentials is that he, he's into Japanese literature and he's married to a Japanese woman. So it's weird the way you always kind of find out very unlikely things about these MEPs once you, <laughs> you mm. dig a little bit deeper. One thing I'm less surprised by is that he paid an assistant 276,000 yes. euros for work that wasn't related related to his job as an MEP, which is not quite allowed under the rules. Yeah, and I think that, well, so the recent court case came out against him and also Le Pen, and he says, I've been uh, basically convicted without proof. But the problem is he doesn't have proof of any of these people actually doing any work. So, and that's mm. why he, that, that's why these allegations seem to be seem to be true. So, yeah, he's an interesting man and one of the more colourful fellows in the Indeed. Now, Lena, did you choose Aldegas Saudagas from Lithuania and his 17 assistants, or did you choose somebody else to discuss? <laughs> 17 assistants. And it was like, <laughs> what do they even do? Like, what, is there a flower waterer and a, like a, like a coffee preparer? A hairbrusher. Yeah. <laughs> And hairdresser. Yes. Yeah, hairdresser to have yeah. And they don't even do the payroll. These two other companies are employed well, to do the that's payroll. Interesting. Actually, I chose Martina Anderson. 
Okay. From mm-hmm. the political group European United Left Nordic Green Left. She's from the United Kingdom. She's Irish. She's 55 years old. And guess why I have chose her? Well, I know Not because why. she's Irish. I know why she is. She's convicted of terrorism. Yeah. Exactly. And she served 13 years in, in prison for Irish Republican Army activities until she was released with a Good Friday agreement. Why I chose her is because it's a really great message of peace and how Europeans come together and that she is part of the European project, even though with her past, the prison, all the attempts she tried or she planned to terminate lives of others that she doesn't agree with and defend her beliefs. And yet she molded over the years and there was another chance and another plan and project to work on. And that is beautiful message to give to the world. Where I come from, these things, they don't happen. You know, we never forgive, we never forget. And if you have something you disagreed with, with your system or with your government, and yeah, you're you're just out and forever they will. There is no this homogeneous forgiveness to come back. And that's why I, I chose her. Yeah, I'm torn on this one. We should, at one level, be encouraging it. It's great. Like, people should transform from terrible personas into something nice and then I think she's also very controversial because she hasn't really actually directly apologized for her activities. Mm. Yeah I mean from an Irish perspective a lot of people who are in the political leadership in Sinn Féin also haven't apologized in that way they don't feel like they have anything to apologize for I'm not saying at all that I endorse that but I have been to events where particularly when I, I worked in mental health she was a very strong advocate on disability rights and mental health and she's very active in the parliament and in a way she served her time and now she's coming back and, and representing Northern Ireland quite well so yeah I think it's quite it's she's an interesting figure I think and really kind of speaks to the some of the success of the peace process in Ireland and then probably some people would disagree with that but and the thing I think I take away from this whole list check it out on politico.eu is that it shows what a diverse cast of characters there are in the parliament I don't know any other parliament in the world that just has this full range of activities from the truly excellent and the truly interesting to the just downright wacky and I'm like (laughs) how is this even happening I don't get it and people who use it as a staging post in a way that I don't really see people in national parliaments using it as a kind of like a a mass cartoon character to a sort of situation Mm -hmm. but it gives us a lot to discuss on this podcast so whatever you did bad or wrong folks thank you for creating material for this podcast Mm -hmm. and uh, thank you Lena, thank you, Alva, for joining us once again. Thank you. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. We really want you to join our community. So if you haven't signed up already to get this podcast, get this newsletter sent to you once a week, go to politico.eu forward slash registration, tick the EU Confidential box and become part of our happy little world here. As always, podcasting is a team effort. So thanks to Michelle Stoddart, Andrew Gray, Wei Dong Lin and Antonio Fernandez for making this possible. 